are in our second week of our Advent series. Advent is the four weeks before Christmas on the church calendar. And so we're taking a look at the Christmas season, the Christmas holiday, and we have asked the question, um, partially just because this is the same thing that our children are asking in children's ministry, is why do we call it Christmas? And last week we talked about a different things having to do with the Christmas holiday, and um, today we're going to answer three questions about Christmas, and then we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 1. And I was talking uh, with uh, my wife last night just kind of about this idea of of, of this, this sermon series and, and the, the reason we're doing it. And, and I really feel like um, there's a couple really good reasons why it's important to look and, and think and, and understand our holiday traditions. Uh, one of those things is it, it really connects us to church history. I think it's really easy for us to forget that we have 2,000 years of faithful men and women who have been following Jesus and, and figuring out how to live lives that are... Um, distinguished for the sake of the gospel. And uh, it's easy to just think that it's just us, just today. We're just struggling through whatever we're going through. But we have this huge heritage. Uh, the Bible says this great cloud of witnesses that have gone through some of these things before. And a lot of this Christmas history deals with that. Um, I think it's an inspiration to, be, um, to, to, to learn about Christians from the past and see what they went through and see how they coped with the world around them. And, and then I also think... Um, Joanna actually brought this up to me last night, is it's just really helpful to, to understand why we do the things that we do. A lot of things that we do every day at the holidays, at work, at church, are just like, well, this is the way we've always done it. But there's a lot of wisdom, I think, in kind of going, look, what, what's really behind this? So we're going to look at three different things today and then take a look at Luke chapter 1. And the, the first question that we're going to answer um, this morning is, when was Jesus born? Last week we talked about December 25th and, and how um, the church way back in the day kind of figured out that was a good time to celebrate the birth of Christ. It was because there were a bunch of pagan festivals around the winter solstice and they wanted to get rid of those and replace them with the worship of the true God. And even though Jesus was probably born in the spring, uh, we settled on December 25th to celebrate his birthday. But the year of Jesus' birth is a different story. And if you ask someone what year was Jesus born, the answer is zero or one, depending on how well you know your calendar, because our whole calendar system is built around Jesus' birth. This is one more example of how Jesus is the most important person in the history of the world. Our entire calendar is built around him, but we have this thing called B.C., and those are the years before Christ, and A.D., those are the years, uh, A.D. stands for Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord, it means after the birth of Christ. And so the answer is Jesus is born right in the middle of those two things. Uh, but why is that the case? And that story starts in, no, on November 20th, uh, 284, a long time ago, with a man named Diocletian. Diocletian was the emperor of Rome. Uh, he started his reign in 284. And the way calendars worked back then, they were a little less... Um, easy to use, they started over every time there was a new ruler. So 284, what we would call 284, was actually Diocletian year one. Now in our system of government, that would be a real pain because every four to eight years, we would have a whole new calendar. It would be 2009 would have been Obama one and 
then 2010 would have been Obama 2, and then so that we got, we would have gotten through Obama 8, and then we would have had to switch to Trump 1 and Trump 2, and, and that's just a pain. Uh, the Romans had it a little easier because their rulers tended to reign for a lot longer, but they still died, and when a new one came along, they would change the calendar again. The thing about Diocletian was he was responsible for one of the worst persecutions of the church in the history of the Roman Empire. Many, many people were killed in horrific ways. You can read stories. I read a few this week, a story of a, of a church leader who was whipped and cut open and then thrown in a vat of salt and tortured um, before he was burnt, slowly burned alive. Many, many uh, pastors and church leaders were imprisoned by Diocletian. Many people were thrown to the lions and to the gladiators. It was just a really terrible time for the church. Um, during this time, though, the church thrived, and uh, people met Jesus in record numbers. And one of the things the church was responsible for throughout its early history was something called the Easter table. This is all going to tie together and make sense in a few minutes. But the, the Easter table, if you've ever noticed, Easter changes dates every year because it's a very complicated calculation based on the moon and the, the Passover and the equinox, and I don't even know how it works. But there's a lot of math involved. And so somebody in the church, a priest, a mathematician, was responsible for creating a table of this is when Easter is on this year and the next year and the next year and the next year. And they'd make these big tables that the whole church would use to celebrate Easter. Well, one of these tables was made during the era of Diocletian. And so all of the years for several hundred years that they projected Easter out were year of Diocletian 50, year of Diocletian 60, year of Diocletian 70. Even, even years long after Diocletian died, since it was done during his reign, all the dates had his name on them. And so then we fast forward to the year 525, and there's a guy named Dionysius Exiguus, which the English translation is Dennis the Small, which I like that. I like Dennis the Small. I think if you're ever struggling for pet names, church fathers are a good go-to. Uh, but Dennis, in 525, he's a priest, he's a mathematician, and he's charged with updating the Easter tables. And he adds 95 more years to the Easter table. But he doesn't want to continue on with the years that the current Easter table has because he doesn't want to honor Diocletian. Because Diocletian was a terrible person, and he harmed the church greatly. And he said, you know, I don't want to use these dates. I don't want to continue on with these numbers. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to figure out when Jesus was born, and I'm going to create a whole calendar based on that, because he's the true king. And so he figured out that the year that he was living in was 525 years after the birth of Christ. And he set up this whole system, and we've lived with this system ever since. Problem was, recently we figured out that he was wrong. <laughs> he did his, he tried, uh, but his math was a little wobbly. Um, we, we now know that Herod the Great, who was the king of Israel, who um, tried to have Jesus killed in the book of Matthew, he died in 4 BC. So Jesus had to have been born before 4 BC. Um, we think maybe he was probably born in 5 BC, so he was just a little baby right before Herod died. It's a little awkward that Jesus was born five years before Jesus was born. But that's okay. He was close. Um, but that's how we got our calendar system. 
The second question that uh, we're going to talk about is, 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 why do we decorate Christmas trees? You ever wonder that? Like, that's one of those things that you just always do. Like, it's time to go cut down the Christmas tree. Why? Because it's Christmas. <laughs> cut down the Christmas tree. Well, this story is an interesting one. Um, Tertullian was a church father in the second century, so the, the middle, like, 150s. He said this, Let them over whom the fires of hell are imminent affix to their posts, laurels doomed presently to burn. To them the testimonies of darkness and the omens of their penalties are suitable. You are a light of the world and a tree evergreen. If you have renounced temples, make not your own gate a temple. It's kind of confusing to understand, but what he's saying is, Christians, if you bring a tree into your house, you're going to hell. He did, not, uh, he did not favor the Christmas tree, but that, that's because he wasn't talking about Christmas trees. Trees had a long history in pagan worship. There's even a verse in the book of Jeremiah that talks about the pagan peoples bringing trees and boughs into their homes as part of their worship to the false gods, and this is what Tertullian is talking about. And if you've ever met a Christian who uh, says, you know, you shouldn't have a Christmas tree because it's pagan, this is the kind of thing they're talking about. But there's another story it takes place a little later in church history, uh, and there's a man named Boniface. He's an Englishman, but he is uh, a missionary. He has a heart for the German people, and he goes to Germany, and he has this incredibly powerful ministry to the Germans, and many, many people come to faith in Christ because of his ministry. In fact, Boniface died in 754. He was martyred and he, while he was holding a baptism. He had converted so many Germans. They, they, they got together for this mass baptism, and these pagan people came and rushed the baptism. And being uh, German um, woodsmen, if, you've, if you're into that kind of Norse vibe, you can imagine everybody had weapons. And so the Germans getting baptized pulled out their weapons. The marauders had weapons. And Boniface says, Cease fighting, lay down your arms, for we are told in Scripture not to render evil for good, but to overcome evil by good. And they listened to him, and they were all killed for their faith. But before this happened, Boniface was kind of an um, exciting figure. He, he didn't put up with paganism. He went to this town of Geismar in Germany, and in, in this town they had something called the Thunder Oak, this big oak tree, and it was dedicated to the god Thor. And if you've ever seen uh, the Avengers movies, um, that's Chris Hemsworth, uh, but <laughs> it's a little weird, uh, but the god Thor was an actual pagan deity that the Germanic peoples worshipped, and they would, they would bring sacrifices to this tree, they would worship this tree, and on Around Christmas time, around the winter solstice, they would sacrifice a child at the base of this tree. And Boniface wasn't down with that. He wasn't going to let that happen. So he got a bunch of his uh, Christian uh, disciples on Christmas Eve, and they came to this oak tree at night, and they cut it down. And the Germans in the village were like, oh man, Thor is going to beat you down for cutting down his tree. And nothing happened. And they were all convinced by Boniface that Thor is actually not real. And Jesus is the one true God. And Boniface says, 
uh, the story goes, the tree, the oak tree fell, and behind the oak tree, there was a little fir tree. Boniface says, this little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be your holy tree tonight. It is a wood of peace. It is a sign of an endless life, for its leaves are evergreen. See how it points upward to heaven. Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it, not in the wild wood, but in your own homes. There it will shelter no deeds of blood, but loving gifts and rites of kindness. And so, when we bring a Christmas tree into our homes, we can remember that we are not um, going out into the woods to worship a bloody God, but we are remembering the Son of God, the Christ child, and celebrating with peace and kindness. The last question I want to talk about, and this is one of my favorite ones, is who's Santa Claus? We have this this whole like secondary Christmas tradition. Like we've got all the Jesus stuff, and then we've got all this Santa Claus stuff. And, and some people, it's, there's enough Santa Claus stuff that you can just completely get rid of the Jesus stuff and have this whole holiday built around Santa Claus. And there's a lot of mythology that sprung up around Santa Claus, but Santa Claus comes from uh, a Christian hero, a guy named Nicholas. If you've ever heard of Saint Nick, this is this man. He's the bishop of a town called Mira in Turkey. He lives in about He's born in about 270 A.D., so 270 years-ish after Jesus is born. And he has wealthy parents who teach him to be a Christian, but then they die with a a disease. They both die and, and leave him a huge inheritance. And so what he decides to do with his inheritance is he takes the words of Jesus seriously when he says, give your possessions to the poor. And so he spends the rest of his life on a mission to find people in need and meet those needs with his great wealth. And there's a story, I'll tell you two stories about St. Nicholas. The first one is he's living in this village and he, he finds out that there is a man who's very poor and he has three daughters. And in that day, Uh, If you were going to get married, ladies, you needed to have a dowry to present to your husband, some money to pay the family of your husband so that he would marry you. And the more money you had, the better husband you could buy, Um, which I suppose has its ups and downs. But um, these women didn't have any money for a dowry, and so their prospects were pretty poor. It's likely that they would have been sold into slavery or prostitution because there was no way for them to make ends meet without being married. And Nicholas finds out about this, and so he sneaks to their house at night, and he pulls some gold coins out of a sack, and he throws them through the window, and they just happen to land in the girl's socks that are hanging in front of the fire to dry. And the girls wake up in the morning and they go and they grab their socks and there's gold coins in their socks. And if, if you're thinking maybe, hey, that sounds kind of familiar, it's because our tradition of hanging stockings by the fire comes from this story. 
There's another story about St. Nicholas. He was um, one of the bishops that was at the Council of Nicaea. And if you're not familiar with the Council of Nicaea, this is a a great church meeting that happened um, under the reign of Constantine. Uh, Diocletian, remember that guy, he, the, the evil guy? He, he, was, um, he actually didn't die, he quit. And he was replaced by a guy named Constantine. And Constantine decided, instead of Diocletian, who said that Christians were a menace and should be killed, Di- uh, Constantine actually made Christianity legal. Constantine became a Christian himself, and, and he realized that scattered around the Roman Empire, there were Christians that didn't agree on things. One of the major things that they didn't agree on is most Christians believe that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit were all God, what we would consider a Trinitarian view of who God is. But there was this other group of Christians called Arians. They followed a man named Arius, and, and Arius taught that Jesus wasn't quite God. He was just a little bit, he was, he was great. Everybody loved him, but he's just a little bit lower than God. And, and so Constantine finds this out and he goes, hey, you guys, you need to figure this out. So he calls all these bishops together to this town in Nicaea. There's like 300 of them there. And they sort out what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. Because they've been living under persecution for so long, they're not really communicating with each other very well because they're living underground. And so they finally have this opportunity to get up, to get out of their hiding and have this church council. And you can read some of the history of the Council of Nicaea and it talks about all of these bishops gathering together and just all the scars and the wounds that they've suffered under Diocletian and, and, and just this amazing freedom they now had to be Christians and not hide And Nicholas is one of the bishops at this gathering. Um, He has a broken nose from being tortured under Diocletian, being imprisoned. It's healed, but it's it's crooked now. And the the bishops are arguing and talking and discussing about, like, who is Jesus? And um, Nicholas is passionate about Jesus. He's passionate about the deity of Christ. He argues forcefully that Jesus is God. And Arius disagrees. Arius brings up his arguments about why Jesus isn't God. Jesus is great, but he's just a little less than God. And and Nicholas gets so passionate about that that he walks across the room and he punches Arius in the face. And for some reason, that's not part of our Christmas traditions. (laughs) I wish it was. That sounds fun. (laughs) I don't know what that would look like. But uh, he he actually, uh, he was condemned by the council for this because unequivocally throughout early church history, Christians were absolutely uh, nonviolent. And so they they condemned him for his outburst of anger and he had to apologize and uh, make it right. But He was so passionate about the truth that he lost his temper and he punched the heretic in the face. So let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. What Sarah read earlier is uh, what's called the Song of Mary. Uh, The the place in the story that we're at is, is Mary has heard from the angel that um, she's going to have a baby, that it's going to be a miraculous pregnancy, and, 
And then the angel kind of says, you know, your relative Elizabeth, she's also pregnant. And that's kind of a miracle too, because her husband, she and her husband are way past childbearing years. They can't have children anymore, but she is six months pregnant. And so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth to kind of share their stories. And when she's there, she gets this confirmation from Elizabeth that, yeah, Mary, you, are, you have been chosen to carry the Messiah. And so Mary uh, kind of bursts out in song here. And she says, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me. And his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. And he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So I want to look at three things from this text that Mary brings out about God's favor, because she talks about God's favor in this, this text. And um, in verse 48, she says, God has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. She's talking about herself. And I think what we can see from this is that God's favor is on the marginalized. See, Mary is poor, she's young, she's a woman, and she's from an oppressed people. There is literally nothing working in her favor as a person in the Roman Empire at that time. She has no rights, she has no authority, she has no resources, she has no respect. And this is the person that God chooses to bring his Savior into the world. He works through the lowly. Mary says, he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. And we see this time and time and time again throughout Scripture that God's priority is on the outcast in society. These are the people that God takes special care of and has special words for. The poor, the minority, the needy, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the refugee, the prisoner. These are the people that, that our society tends to discount because they're, they're, maybe they're just not as useful to us. We have a big utility function in our society. What can you do for me? How can you contribute and if you don't measure up to that, then you're not as great, you're not as important, you're not as valuable. And maybe because of that, God is constantly talking about loving them, fighting for them, caring for them, vindicating them, providing them with good things. In verse 51 Mary says, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. 
The second thing we can see with God's favor is that God's favor is upside down. God scatters the proud, he topples the mighty, and the rich, are, they go away empty. And these are all categories of people that we tend to elevate. We, we exalt the proud, we cheer for the mighty, we um, cozy up to the rich to see if we can get something out of them. And God completely flips our culture's expectations upside down. Um, if you've ever seen the, the movie The Founder or read any of the recent biographies about uh, Ray Kroc, he was an interesting guy. A, a quote of his, uh, he's the, he, his story, if you don't know, is, is he, was a, he was a milkshake machine salesman and he delivered some milkshake machines to this little burger joint uh, called McDonald's, and he was blown away by the system they had developed to make hamburgers and fries really, really quickly. And he realized that this was an incredibly profitable enterprise, and so he worked his way uh, into the uh, um, association of the McDonald's brothers who own this restaurant, and he ended up taking McDonald's from them and creating the McDonald's Corporation and becoming a multi-billionaire. And the McDonald's brothers um, were compensated comparatively very poorly for that. And all they really wanted to do was just have a fun restaurant and run it themselves. But Ray Kroc says this. He says, if any of my competitors were drowning, I'd stick a hose in their mouth and turn on the water. I'll kill them and I'm going to kill them before they kill me. You're talking about the American way of the survival of the fittest. And you might go like, that's disgusting. <laughs> but you know it's true. You know that's how business works. Even you may feel that in your own life, that like you, you just kind of sidestep what's right because it's going to give you a little bit of advantage. Maybe you're not that blatant about it, but this is how the world works. I've had countless conversations with people where the way of Jesus is presented as this is how you should respond to this situation. And the answer is, yeah, but nobody does that. Yeah, but I'll get taken advantage of. Yeah, but I'll lose money. I'll, I'll be laughed at. I'll be disrespected if I act in humility and grace and kindness. And because that's just how our world is built. And, and Mary says, God has scattered the proud, toppled the mighty, and sent the rich away empty. God's priorities and God's favor flips the culture upside down. Verse 54, Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. The third thing we can see about God's favor is that God's favor is a certainty. Mary looks back on the history of her people and says, God promised that the Savior would come Thousands of years ago, he promised it to Abraham. He promised it to the people of Israel, to my ancestors. He said, the Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. The one who is going to put all things right is on his way. 
And Mary says they're finally coming true, these promises. In Jesus, God's promises are being fulfilled. And the the world that Mary lives in, the, the Jewish people haven't had it great, really, for a long time. But it's particularly rough in the first century. They've been oppressed by countless people, one after the other, the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans. And their cities are overrun with Roman soldiers and their worship is restricted and their money goes to pay the expenses of this occupying force. And Mary knows, Mary has been taught the history of her people. She knows the scriptures and she knows that God has promised that it's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be like it is. And she says, finally, God is coming through his promises. God's favor is on the marginalized. God's favor is upside down, and God's favor is a certainty. So if there's a couple things we can think about this morning, and the first thing is maybe you are marginalized. Maybe you relate to some of these things. Maybe you feel like you're poor, you're in need, you are outcast. And the the good news of the gospel this morning is that Jesus steps into that mess that you're in. Just like Jesus comes into Mary's life as a outcast, as a marginalized person. Jesus steps into that. And he doesn't, notice he doesn't give Mary money He doesn't give Mary power. He doesn't kick out the Roman government. He gives Mary himself. Jesus steps into the mess that we are in and he gives us himself. If we're weary, if we're broken, if we feel like we can't get through whatever is in front of us, Jesus says, here am I. Lean on me. Cast your yoke upon me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. And even if, even if you feel like, man, I don't, I'm not even sure that that's true. I've heard that before. I've believed that in the past and it just doesn't feel like it's going to happen. Mary seems to answer that question by saying, look, This has been promised for hundreds and hundreds of years, and today it's coming true. It's like if Mary's actually saying, I get that it's hard to believe sometimes, but God keeps his promises. However long we have to wait, there's a reason for that, but God always comes through. But maybe... Maybe you're not, maybe you don't feel like Mary. Maybe you feel like things are going good. I've got a good job. I've got a good place in society. I've got respect of my peers. Things are going well. Maybe you're more like Nicholas. See, 
the thing I love about Nicholas is that he is fiercely orthodox. He's invited to this church council and he can't stand that God's word is being manipulated and distorted. He loses his temper and he punches somebody in the face because of the Bible. But he's also fiercely generous because he sees who Jesus is and takes him so seriously enough to get um, rebuked for violence He gives his money to the poor. He says, I believe in Jesus so strongly. I trust his word so greatly. I'm going to take this benefit that has been given to me, this inheritance that my parents have left me, and I'm going to live my life giving it away in the service of others. I'm going to find people in need and meet those needs in Jesus' name. Not not in spite of who Jesus is, but because of who Jesus is. Because I am so strongly convinced of the truth of this book. And I think it's, those are two things to hold on to tightly for us. To hold on to the truth of the gospel, but also to because we believe in the truth of the gospel, actually do what it says. There was a movement in the church history is interesting. I, I don't if you don't like history, I'm sorry. <laughs> but but there was a there was a movement in the church in the early 20th century. It was a controversy called the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And, and the way it worked is in the early 20th century, the world was changing. Um, the world was getting bigger, much like it has in recent years, but it was getting bigger. The telegraph, the telephone, the radio, people were being connected all around the world. Industry was booming. And many people in the church said, you know what, we need, we need to change Christianity to meet the needs of the current generation because it just doesn't work anymore. People don't, just don't believe this anymore. So we need to change it up. And so the modernists said, you know, we believe in science. We know that there are things that are just not possible. So let's, let's not talk about Jesus being God. Let's not talk about the virgin birth. Let's not talk about miracles anymore. That's, that's not important. Let's just talk about how Jesus was a nice guy and we should do good things for people. And this is what, what led to a stream of Christianity that is incredibly concerned with the needs of the poor and the marginalized, the needy, but has no real concern for whether or not this is true. Because what does it really matter as long as you're a nice person? But then this other group of Christians who came to be known as the fundamentalists said, no, no, no. Our faith rises or falls on the truth of this book. We have to stand for what we know is true about the gospel of Jesus. We need to stand on the fundamentals of the faith. And they argued that the Bible is true, and we can know that it's true, and there's archaeological evidence that it's true, and and this kind of created this stream of Christianity and this apologetic that fights for the truth of God's word. But over the years, the modernists kept going the direction they were going, 
And they got more and more socially conscious and less and less biblically conscious. And the fundamentalists kept going the direction they were going, and they got more and more biblically conscious and less and less socially conscious. To where you get to a place today where you can be a Christian and say, you know, we should care about the poor. And somebody will go, you're a liberal! When the Bible is very clear that we should care about the poor. And I love the witness of Nicholas. Because Nicholas is both. And I think that's where we should be. I think we should say, this is true. Jesus is God. He's the Savior. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead, really. It was a miracle. It's never happened since. And he gives us supernatural power through the Holy Spirit to live lives that are different and better than we would be on our own. But then we should also say, and because of who Jesus is, he's shaping us into people that care about the same things that he cares about. What are those things? And how can we use the gifts that we've been given to meet the needs of other people? We meet, some of us guys meet on Monday mornings for uh, men's cohort. It's it's six o'clock in the morning at the Croc Center. And every morning I go, why am I doing this? But it's really good. So if if you're not joining us, you're welcome to join us. But one of the things we're, we're doing right now is we're reading through a Tim Keller devotional on Proverbs. And it's, uh, so we just kind of, we pick somebody's birthday and open up to that date and, and read a proverb and, and read his kind of discussion on it. And last Monday, I, I forget exactly what it was about, but it was about the, the, the principle of the proverb saying that you, if you have more than you need and your neighbor has less than they need, you have an obligation to help them as a follower of Christ. And we were reading the devotional and, and Keller said something, I, I think something like, you know, if they, need your, if they need groceries, you can give them some money and they can get some groceries. And we were like, yeah, that's good. And then he says, if their son can't afford to go to college, you can pay for their college tuition for them. And we all laughed. <laughs> we're like, Tim Keller's crazy. <laughs> but the more I think about that, Like, isn't that exactly what St. Nicholas spent his life doing? Now, maybe you and I don't have a massive inheritance from our parents. Maybe we do. I don't know. But he had vastly more than he needed. And he went, you know what? I'm going to give it to people who don't. And I'm not just going to dole it out so that they can barely get by. I'm going to really meet people's needs. And I think that's just so exciting. Like, I... I want, I want to be able to do more of that. I want, to, I want to have more opportunity to give what I've been given back to others. And sometimes that means getting more of it. I mean, I've talked to some of you before about how our mortgage is too expensive and we're working on figuring out how to downsize so that we have more resources that we can give away. But it also means, I think, looking at what we have differently and having eyes to see what people need. And hey, you know what? I actually actually have that. I, I have 
an extra car that somebody can borrow, or I have 20 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever that they need. And, and I think we just, we just live so in such a small place that we just don't see those kind of things around us. And, and my prayer for myself, especially in, in this season, is God, show me what those needs are. Show me the things that I have that you say that because you've given them to me, I owe them to those that don't have. And connect me with those people. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure that Nicholas had a blast giving all his money away. And I feel like when we are generous, we probably have a pretty good time too. Mary says, God is doing something in me, in this nation, that he's prophesied for hundreds of years. The Savior is coming. The one who is going to make all things right. And we reap the benefits of that if we are in Christ. And this is the, the reminder that we give ourselves every week of the communion meal. We, we we, in the season of Jesus' birth, talk about this, this baby born in Bethlehem, but the, the baby grew and had a mission. And that mission was to fix the things that were broken in the, in the world and in my heart. And he did that not by becoming proud and mighty and rich, but by doing all of the opposite things, by being poor and lowly and humble and by defeating death through dying on the cross. And so we celebrate Jesus every week, the bread representing his body and the, the cup representing his blood. And, and we remember his sacrifice on the cross, his gift to us, the, the great thing that he had that we didn't. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give of myself to them. And it also reminds us that he lives inside of us. If we, are, if we are his, if we are followers of Christ, he, he says that he is going to come to us and he sends us his Holy Spirit at salvation and we operate supernaturally gifted by God inside of us. And as we take the bread and drink the cup, it's a reminder that he is at work in us and that something from the outside sustains us that we are ultimately all needy, all poor, all oppressed, all marginalized by sin and death, and, and that we need what he has to give us. And we don't just need it once, we need it over and over and over again. And so as we uh, close and as we sing a little bit more, I would just encourage you to just take some time to think through Who are the people in your life? Who are the places in your life, the circumstances that you can lean into in this season, that you can ask the Lord, hey, show me where some need is. Show me, show me where I can use what you've given me. And that, it might be financial, it might not be. To bless other people. And if you're feeling, man, I just, I feel empty. I feel broken. Then just rest in the fact that Jesus knows and Jesus 
came to not necessarily fix all your problems. He doesn't fix all Mary's problems, but he comes to Mary and he's with Mary and his own self is the gift that he gives to Mary. And Jesus is the gift that he's given to us. And That's powerful. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.